I wonder if that looks like any of your life. I get tired every time I watch that bumper video. I'm exhausted, but it reminds me how tiring the days can be. Well, good morning. It's great to be preaching live here from Wilmington. Nice to see all of you and be with you. Uh, it is great to know that uh, occasionally from time to time, our campus pastors are able to each speak in their own locations. Uh, Dave Ripper is over in Lexington. We've got uh, Joe Linda in Watertown. Uh, Tom Lee is in East Lexington. And you can catch them all online later in the week. So, uh, but here we are together. Great to, uh, great to be with you. Well, the inevitable finally happened. Uh, after a number of years of consideration, the word selfie was finally added to the Oxford Dictionary. And in 2013, it was uh, touted as the word of the year for them. The rise of the selfie was indeed underway. Now, we all know that from the very beginnings of civilization, I mean, way, way back something B.C., uh, mobile phones didn't have the front-facing camera. Way, I mean, way back then, right? Uh, the, 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 the lens of the camera was on the other side of the display so that when you took a picture, you could take a picture of stuff out there. But uh, back in 2010, Apple followed the lead of a few pioneering mobile device companies and put a front-facing camera on the iPhone 4. And history was forever changed. The world of photography was changed forever, for sure. Uh, suddenly, the rightful subject of most of our, uh, of our pictures changed from, from you or them or that to me, right? Now we've got things straightened out. Uh, it is no exaggeration to say that we have become a selfie-obsessed culture. Uh, 93 million selfies are created every day. Now, that is the equivalent to 2.5 million rolls of film each day. And of course, with the rise of social media, we all get to see them. 74% uh, of all the images that are posted on Snapchat are selfies. Uh, every 10 seconds on Instagram, over 1,000 selfies are posted. Uh, and on our Facebook news feed, we get to see uh, at, at least 49%, the majority of all selfies taken are posted on Facebook. The fact is people are spending so much time looking at their camera as they're taking a picture, it's become literally dangerous. Uh, would you like to guess what was more deadly last year? Shark attacks or selfie accidents? Uh, well, no, it wasn't the sharks. More people died from selfie, trying to take selfies than being attacked by sharks in 2015. This guy got to check both boxes with one picture, I think. No, I don't know what happened to him after that picture was taken. But uh, I am not here to bash anyone's joy in taking pictures or the ease of convenience uh, of marking memories um, for busy families or people who live alone, single adults. Um, but I do think that the rise of the selfie as a cultural phenomenon tells us more about us then maybe we care to acknowledge or admit. The fact is, the pointing of the camward lens inward on ourselves is an indication of something that's going on deeper inside of our souls. Because it's not just the camera's lens that's pointing in on ourselves. More and more, it seems that our very lives are turning in and pointing in on ourselves. This increased attention 
on us. Uh, this narcissistic tendency is literally becoming an epidemic. And of course, it's an epidemic that's fueled by living in a very mature, consumeristic uh, society, market-driven one that reaches us very personally in our homes, on our screens, in our hands. Uh, Facebook feeds and social media feeds that procure for us all of the things we really want. How many of you have checked out something online and then seen it pop up over and over on every site that you visit? How do they do that? I do not know. But there it is. There to suit every one of our individual tastes. And then, of course, the niche magazines that uh, call from your attention from the aisles, uh, shouting at you, telling you that you really are the most important one. Candidates during an election season that promise that your interests will be taken care of if you check the box for them. Now, of course, sensing a trend, uh, Time Magazine, which every year puts out a magazine with uh, the person of the year on the cover, something, somebody who's done something great, head of state, uh, Nobel Peace uh, winner, whatever it is, uh, they sense this trend, and a few years ago, Time's person of the year was you. Did you see that one? Congratulations. Let's congratulate you right now for making it on the cover of Time. Uh, now, you think that all of this self-attention would, uh, would be good for us, would make us feel good, would make us feel special. Um, to have a world pointed towards you seems like it would be a world that is working finally the way it should. But the reality is, and we know this, that those who live self-absorbed lives, when they do it, something goes wrong inside their heart inside their spirit. And a lot goes wrong, actually, when we live our lives pointed inward. Instead of leading to joy and happiness and contentment, studies show us that when we focus on ourselves, it actually leads to greater rates of depression, to heightened anxiety. It leads to a sense of despondency about life and a deeper disconnect from other people as we assume that they're in on the game living their lives for us, and we start to disconnect. Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible and other things, puts it this way. He says, centering life in the insatiable demands of the ego is a sure path to doom. Life confined to the self is a prison, a joy-killing, neurosis-producing, disease-fomenting prison. Welcome to the reality of our lives. But this is what we're, we're told. This is what we experience. You see, life by default is a life pointed inward. But the truth is, a life pointed inward becomes a prison that we can't escape from. That's the truth we discover this morning as we open the scriptures to Colossians once again. We're in week five of our fall series from, from the New Testament book of Colossians. We're calling it Thrive because Paul, the writer of this letter to the churches uh, that he sent them to, is telling the church and us what it is to live lives to the full as human beings, as Christ followers, <clears throat> as a church. And we want to do that not only so that we can thrive, but so that the world around us can thrive. And so far we've discovered that we thrive when our lives are grounded in the knowledge of God, 
when our lives are shaped by the gospel of Christ, when, when our lives are centered on Christ. And last week, we discovered that we thrive when we say yes to better things. In today's message, this week, we learned that we thrive when our lives are pointed in the right direction. So let's get right to it. We're going to jump right into uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It's about a little over halfway point of the letter. And Paul speaks these words uh, in this letter at this spot. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I have to admit, sometimes I read through verses like this uh, in the scriptures, and I sort of breeze through them relatively quickly. Because at first blush, it sounds like Paul is saying something nice, but not really important, and maybe not really potent. My girls are, my youngest girls are in kindergarten this year. Sometimes I feel like kindergarten is like that. Is it really school or not? Are they really learning stuff? What do they learn? Well, they come home talking about lessons about being nice to each other, about getting along with each other, about saying polite things and not hurting each other about including people on the playground and sharing their toys. All of these are really important things, and they're certainly nice. But let's face it, it's not the big stuff. It's not like European history uh, during the Enlightenment era. Like, that is heavy. Or calculus, or, bi uh, bi uh, or molecular biology. It's all really simple stuff that you learn in kindergarten. And it all seems really nice, but it seems sort of lightweight. And that's sometimes how I come to a passage like this in Paul's letter here. But as I got to thinking about it more, and of course as I began to think about bringing this message to the congregation this morning, I realized that, it, that if we breeze by these verses too quickly, that we do so at our peril. Why? Because if our greatest challenge, if the greatest challenge of our age is the prison of an inward-pointed life, which I believe to be the case for us, then the words of this passage offer the key to our freedom and a chance to experience the flourishing of life that we've been created for. So Paul is calling us to, in these verses, to take those inward-pointed arrows and intentionally bend them outward. He's calling us to an outward-pointed life, not an inward-pointed life. Now, it begins with some simple moves, but these simple moves begin to make a profound difference. He talks about compassion. Compassion is actually feeling the pain of another person, feeling their hurt and giving them attention rather than ourselves. Kindness is, is, is finding ways to benefit another person. It can be very simple ways, or it can be ways that touch them very deeply. Kindness is turning the arrow out 
Humility is, is not believing that this world is about me and that my life is about me, but that actually this life is bigger than me and includes other people. Humility says that others have a contribution to make and that all the attention doesn't have to be here. And of course, gentleness. Gentleness is, is just considering, considering the sensitivities of other people as we make our way through life. It's not running roughshod over people, but caring for them as we move carefully forward. And then, of course, patience is the willingness to put on hold the fulfillment of a desire for ourselves, oftentimes for the sake of another person, letting someone else be the first to benefit, standing in line at the drinking fountain in kindergarten is an important part of that. So the remarkable thing about this is that when you begin to point your life outward in the ways that these verses are calling us to, it literally begins to free you from the prison of you. It frees you from the prison of you. Why does it work this way? Uh, it works that way because of this. And we all know this to be true. When you focus on yourself, when we focus on ourselves, what do we see? We see our wants. We see what we want. And guess what happens when we give inordinate attention to our wants? We find our lives wanting. We find ourselves disappointed. And it doesn't matter what area of life we're talking about, we get disappointed now by our finances, we get disappointed in our relationships. We get disappointed in our marriage. Uh, we, we want more from our kids. We see how they reflect on us, and we wonder if it's enough, if it's good enough. We get disappointed with the make and model of the car we drive. Uh, we get disappointed by the number of letters after our name and title. We get disappointed by the number of digits on the paycheck we take home. So when we focus on our wants, we find ourselves wanting. But when we point our lives outward, we get our eyes off ourselves and off our wants, and we place them in better places, onto something better. There's an old story that gets to the heart of it. It's a story I often share on a wedding day, if I'm performing a wedding for a couple. It's a story that explains what life looks like when turned outward. It goes like this. One day, a man was walking along the street, and he was sad at heart. Business was dull, and he had set his desire upon a horse he had so wanted to buy, a horse that cost $1,000, but he only had 800 to buy it with. Now, there were other things for sure that might have been bought with $800, but he did not want those, and so he was sorrowful and thought the world a bad place. As he walked along, he saw a child running up towards him. It was a small boy, and when he looked at him, the boy's eyes and face lightened like sunshine, and, and he broke into smiles. The boy held out his hand, closed in a fist. Guess what I have, the little boy said gleefully. Something fine, I'm sure, the man said, wooed by that boy's enthusiasm. The child nodded and drew near, and he opened his hand. 
Look, said the boy. And the street rang with his happy laughter. The man looked down, and in the child's hand lay a shining penny. Hooray, said the child. Hooray, said the man, unable to resist. Then they parted, and the child went and bought a stick of candy. And he saw all the world red and white in stripes. The man then went and took his $800 and put it in the savings bank. All but 50 cents. And with that 50 cents, he bought a hobby horse for his own little boy. And at that moment, his little boy saw all the world brown with white spots. Is this the horse you so wanted to buy, Father? It is the horse I have bought, said the man. Hooray, said the little boy. Hooray indeed, said the man. And he saw that the world was a good place after all. Now that story tells an important truth. It speaks to the reality that the turning of our attention from ourselves to another provides a surprising benefit. You see, in life, when we keep our eyes on ourselves, we will see life through the lens of our own deficits. But when we selflessly begin to love others and show others kindness, we then take our eyes off ourselves and begin to see the life through generosity and through fullness. And our world and outlook on life becomes brighter as the arrows begin to bend outward. Now, of course, there are times when keeping the arrows pointed out of our lives becomes more challenging. Paul goes on to speak to some of those realities. He says this. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bearing with each other. Forgiving one another. You see, it's one thing to give someone, to give to someone for whom uh, it costs you little and uh, they appreciate what you've offered. But it gets much more challenging when, to keep your life pointed outward when the people around you uh, are difficult to bear. Let's start with that one. Bear with each other. In the Greek, it's translated to endure, to put up with, to suffer. We all know what it's like to have people in our lives that we bear with from time to time. Maybe it's people that you love very much. Uh, in the Van Antwerp family, there are times when uh, the girls have gone to bed and the four adults uh, will sit down and play a game. There are times when that goes gloriously. There are times when that goes painfully poor. And we are bearing with one another through whatever game it is we're playing. Why? Because somebody starts tapping their hand on the table. Somebody says, stop that. Somebody says, stop that. Stopping that to the person saying, stop. I mean, it all blows up. And we are just bearing with each other. I know most of your families, you don't have to bear with each other in the family. But that's the way we roll. Um, but there's people beyond, obviously, the sphere of the people who are closest to us that we have to bear with. Sometimes we have to bear with that person at work who drives us a little crazy. Maybe it's that person we see every day that we don't like very much, but God has positioned them right next to us. And we're called to bear with them. Uh, sometimes God 
challenges us to love, even those who are difficult to love. And don't ever forget, someone just might be having to bear with you through the day that you live as well. Goes both ways. I hear that, Josh. <laughs> um, but maybe it's, someone, uh, maybe it's someone who just moves through life differently than you do. The fact is, we bear with each other when we love each other through our differences. Um, one of the recurring themes throughout Colossians, the book of Colossians, is that is this breaking down the, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. The, this taking down the barrier that separates uh, race and, and culture. Uh, and our natural inclination is to interact with people who just do life the way we do. Um, but the gospel holds out this grand vision for humanity that finds beauty in diversity, uh, that finds strength in love that breaks through our difference, uh, and a spiritual family that becomes stronger because we are not all the same. And so sometimes bearing with one another leads to something beautiful and good. We show regard even when it costs time and consideration and understanding. And it's helpful to remember again that, that as much as we are called to bear with another, people are having to bear with us too. So bearing with one another is one of those times the arrows get challenged. Another time is when we are called to forgive. Now this is when it gets very challenging. If there is ever a challenge to the outward pointed life, this is it. Nothing gets the arrows pointing inward faster than a wrong that's done by another person to us. Everything from a snub, to a betrayal, to an attack, to an injustice, nothing feels more natural and more justified at moments like that than going like this and turning the arrow back. Self-protection, right? And in doing this, we believe we're also holding someone else accountable. That, that we're keeping them locked up in a prison that we are creating of unforgiveness. And we feel very justified because it's just. But Paul knows that unforgiveness is a prison, not that we construct around someone else, but it's a pr prison that we construct around our own lives. Someone once said, holding a resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Drinking poison, waiting for the other person to die. You see, forgiveness, this most difficult aspect of an outward-pointed life, leads, however, to the greatest freedom we can imagine if we're able to turn and offer it. Free from the nursing of a grudge that takes so much of our time and energy. Free from, from letting an old wound begin to fester and, and spread through our body like an infection tearing us apart, free uh, to offer others what God has so graciously offered to us and that we have needed so desperately, the forgiveness of God, free to turn around that and offer that very same thing to others and in so doing, becoming more and more like our creator, learning to live a life that is truly thriving. It's the real beauty of living an outward pointed life. And that's what he calls us to to turn the arrows that are pointing inward, outward. But Paul also calls us to another thing as well here. Not only to live lives pointed out, 
He also calls us to live lives pointed up, an upward pointed life. Because if lives pointed out are characterized by love and forgiveness, an upward pointed life focused on God and his goodness to us are characterized by gratitude and joy. Gratitude and joy. Listen to the the second movement of these verses. And hear Paul's appeal to gratitude and thankfulness. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanksgiving is an upward-pointed life, turning our attention to God who offers us good things. A few months back, my wife Julie picked up a little book that has been sitting on our counter and has been opened and closed a number of times um, that we've been talking about back and forth from summertime until now through the fall. The book is entitled 1,000 Gifts, and it's written by a series of reflections written by a woman named Anne of Voskamp. Now, Anne, the author, her life has not been easy. When she was very young, she and her mother watched as her four-year-old sister was crushed by a truck right in front of them. And that breaking led to a break in her mother, who checked herself into a psychiatric hospital. And it caused a break in her dad, who, who turned angry and bitter towards God and walked away. And more recently, as an adult, Anne stood beside her brother-in-law as he buried his first two sons. And so Anne has had a lot of hardship in her life. But all the way through, she has fought hard to keep the circumstances of her life from turning her inward, uh, bringing her to a place of, of despair and isolation. And at a pivotal moment, a friend of Anne's put forward a challenge to her. She dared her to start counting 1,000 things she loved. She took the dare, Anne did, and accepted the challenge. And she kept track of 1,000 things, 1,000 gifts, 1,000 graces. Uh, And uh, she started to write them down on a quiet, unassuming blog online. And and her daily habit of counting graces, she said, saved her life. She's gotten to 1,000. She's made her way to 3,000 and beyond by now. She writes this. She says, before I knew it, thankfulness to God began to fully change me. What I actually found startling was more daily wonder and surprising beauty than I had ever expected. And in a few short years, this daily hunt for God's grace, his glory, had ushered me into a fuller life of joy. And now her practice of gratitude began to take root and spread like a good virus. Um, And Anne began to correspond with thousands of people around the world who have begun to make their own lists. And they write to her from, from jail cells and deathbeds, from... Uh, third world slums and suburban areas around the world. Our family has been in on it as well this past fall. 
Julia's created a journal that uh, after some dinners that seem successful enough, <laughs> we'll pull it out and we'll sit down and we'll go around the circle with all six of our kids, all, all four of our kids and the two of us rather, and, uh, and we'll each make a contribution to the journal. And, and what you discover about this upward pointing practice is that it is a habit that must be formed. It doesn't naturally come to us necessarily. And a contemporary of Martin Luther said, a nail that is driven out by another, a nail is driven out by another nail. He said, habit is overcome by another habit. And so this habit of gratitude is created nail by nail. Because if our habit is this, if our habit is this, we must drive it out by the nail of this. And this habit begins to drive out that habit. And it's, by, it's nail by nail, the learning of the habit and discipline of thanksgiving that comes to us. It doesn't come in a general way where we say, thank you, God, for everything. Thank you, God, for everything. Thank you, God, for everything. No, we say, God, thank you for this. And thank you for this. And thank you for this. Until we add them up and they become hundreds and thousands of ways that God has blessed us and graced us. And again, it's not always easy. This week, I was sitting with some friends, and we were taking a few minutes to catch up on each other's lives. And uh, we decided just to go around the circle and, and say to each other something that the other person should know that's going on in their life. Answering that simple question, what do we need to know about the condition of your life and about the condition of your soul. So we each kind of shared for a little bit around that circle. <clears throat> and everyone had something to share. Uh, ups and downs, quite honestly. Uh, but then this one friend of ours shared something about a deep disappointment in her relationship that she'd been hopeful about and had come to an abrupt end. And she shared that with us. And as she shared, she shared it with some tears and spoke of the hurt and sadness but then she took out her journal and she shared with, the, with us a reflection that she'd written in the journal. It was actually a quote from another person's reflection on the song, um, How Great Thou Art. And she said, I felt these words personally, so I wrote them down too. And here's what she wrote. I love how this hymn helps my life helps me lift my eyes from my inadequacy to his sufficiency, from my not enough to his always enough, to shift my gaze from my sin and mistakes to God's sacrifices and his grace, from my problems and pain to God's power and mercy, from the mess of my heart to the beauty of his love, from the ache of this world to the hope of our eternal home. And after she shared that and we grabbed a few tissues to pass around, she looked at us and said, I don't want my life to be turned inward. I don't want to live inward. I want to lift my head and I want to live. You know what happened in that circle? Her affirmation and resolve to live that outward and upward pointed life in the face of discouragement sort of fueled every one of our resolves to do just the same. 
that's what happens when we do these things in community with one another. As a matter of fact, it leads me to the final point this morning. That this outward and upward-pointed living, it is a communal and a community reality. We can't do it, surprise, by ourselves on our own. Maybe you notice that the passage that Paul wrote here isn't directed to an individual. It's addressed to a group of people, to groups of people, to communities of communities, to churches. And in his letter, he doesn't use the singular uh, pronouns. Listen. He says, is God's chosen person? No, it's God's chosen people. Clothe yourself No, clothe yourselves with compassion. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. Let Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you are called to peace. Let the message of Christ dwell among you. You, plural. uh, As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And whatever you, plural, do, whether in word and deed, do it all. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So here it is. Do you want to know what it is that is the antidote to the narcissism of our age? Wouldn't you love to know what that is? I would suggest that it's God calling together a people who encourage one another to live outward and upward-pointed lives. And it gets us away from this self, selfie-obsessed society that we live in and our selfie-obsessed lives that we live. We, we can break each other out of our isolated selves, out of our siloed living to remind each other of these things. That's what happens when we come together. That's why he says, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom That happens when we get together and share our lives and our stories. We teach and admonish each other. Our our challenges in dealing with these things, uh, we we share together. We talk about our life and our proclivity to selfishness in our life communities, in our Bible studies, and around our dinner tables. And, And when we sit with a friend over coffee, we share wisdom to fight against the inward pointed life. And when we do, we encourage each other to live that way. As we gather through songs and hymns and spiritual songs, it happens as we gather together here on Sunday mornings and as we lift our voices to God, reminding ourselves that our lives are lived best when they're pointed upward to the God who gives us all good things. As we remind each other that in the midst of our sometimes hopelessness and in the midst of our sometimes sorrow, which is inevitably a part of our gathering here on Sunday mornings because we all come from different places. In the midst of a person's greatest point of despair, around him or her, they hear voices of people who are next to them lifting their voices to God, pointing their lives upward. It's why it's important, even if we're not really familiar with a song, even in a room where the acoustics are sometimes pretty rough, to lift our voices together, to let each other know and to remind each other that we are 
God's chosen people. That we are dearly loved. Because sometimes we don't believe it ourselves. And sometimes we need to be reminded by someone sitting next to us. That we are holy. That we are set apart by a God who created us and loved us to fulfill the purposes he has for us. Greater purposes than simply self-gain as we make our way through this world. And you see, as we point our lives upward together, we begin to find our, our lives being filled with that same love, with a capacity then to turn to others and love as well. And when we do this, what do we find? We find ourselves being rooted and grounded and eventually bearing great fruit. And what is that? That, my friends, is the life that is thriving, a flourishing life. Let's encourage each other. Let's encourage each other to live an outward life, to live an upward life in the face of a world that is pointing the arrows in on each one of us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we thank you for your word that meets us in our true experience. We thank you, God, that there is an alternative to the narrative that the world writes for us and invites us to step into, that narrative of us as consumer and us as recipient and us as the center. Lord, we, knew, we know that those are manipulations by powerful forces that are not seeking our benefit, but they're good. But God, into that narrative comes another story where we are called by a selfless God to live a selfless life and in so doing, finding the richness and the goodness of a life that flourishes. And God, that counter intuitive, subversive message is the message of Jesus. It's what we cling to. It's what we hold on to. It's what you've invited us into. And it is what is called the life that is truly, truly life. May we live it. May we share it. May we experience the fullness of it and find you at the center. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.